Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Uh, last week, um, when Pastor Brenda was preaching, um, she made a very controversial statement that I feel like we actually need to take time to address this week. I wasn't happy with it, and I know at least a lot of you were. And um, she commented on the artwork on the screen behind us and uh, had called this a frog with long legs. Um, I'd never, I don't even know where you came up with that. It was Mark. Okay, so she's passing the buck already. So we brought it online this week to have a bit of a discussion online and allow people to weigh in, whether that is a frog or a flame, because we were talking about the Holy Spirit, just because it's not like red in particular. It's one of those, yeah, it's his kind of flame, the Holy Spirit's kind of flame. So what we thought we would do, just to just settle this so that we can move on, because I can't move on um, as the person who did that artwork, I it was uh, just offended very deeply uh, by it. I'm just kidding. Luckily, I've been doing it long enough that I, I, this is not personal to me at all. But uh, let's just do with a quick show of hands. Without, without Brenda's influence last week, her ungodly influence in your life, or Mark's, Yes, I, this is all on Brenda because she brought it up, but it's actually Mark. Without that influence, who saw a frog for the last like nine weeks? There's a few. Who thought it was a flame? Like, okay, great, all right. So, I, who didn't know what in the world it was? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. That's the Holy Spirit walking, Carl said. Okay. <laughs> so there's compromise in there. Anyway, so clearly I won that, just uh, for the record. We have this now on our podcast online. I have won the argument. Uh, the flame or frog gate, <laughs> as we will call it. Anyway, um, this week we're starting in, in a new series. We're going to do a book study on uh, the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. This is um, a book. It's uh, written by the Apostle Paul, although that's not even, there's a lot of scholarly debate about whether that's true. But just in order to not get into that minutia super deep, we're just going to say it's written by Paul. Most likely that's who wrote it, um, even though there is some scholarly debate about it. But this is the shortest of what are called the prison epistles. So Paul wrote this book of Colossians from prison, most likely in Ephesus. And it's one of the shortest books that he wrote. Um, this was written in roughly 60 to 63 AD, which is really important because Paul wrote this in the context of uh, a Roman-ruled world at the time. The Roman government and the Roman Empire was at sort of its, its height and its pinnacle at the time of this writing. And Paul also wrote this in a time period that was not hundreds and hundreds of years after the resurrection and death and, 
events of the Easter weekend with Jesus, he wrote this, and there would have been people present in his sphere of influence in this community in Colossae who very well could have been there or been around as eyewitnesses to see the events that unfolded in the life of Jesus. So we're not talking about Paul writing something that's totally disconnected from the events in question. We're talking about something that happened not too long ago. And in terms of antiquity and writing, 30, 60, 70 years is like, that's like throwing a blog out today, you know, this afternoon. It's very short in its timeline. But it's important for us to understand that Paul isn't writing this based on just sort of hearsay that was passed down from one person to the next and then the next and next and next. He's writing this with firsthand eyewitness information. He's writing this to the people of a city called Colossae. And right now, this is in what is modern-day Turkey. We can throw that map up there if you have it. So this city, Colossae, down here in the blurry part, <laughs> is in modern-day Turkey, southern Turkey. And what's really interesting about this is this city is relatively unimportant. There's nothing special about that city. It had reached its apex of importance years and years and years ago. But there was something specific that Paul needed to address with the people that were there. A few years after Paul wrote this, this city and the three that were around it were destroyed by a massive earthquake. And so we don't actually hear about this city anymore. The whole city was leveled by this massive earthquake, roughly AD 64 or somewhere around there. And so this small, insignificant city demands our attention and Paul writes one of his shortest but most profound letters to the church in his generation. As we study the Bible, it's important that we actually understand the history and the context and the geography. We can't just extract the Bible out of that and make up our own conclusions. Paul wrote this book of Colossians to specific people in a specific time for specific reasons. And if we're going to understand what the Bible is saying to us today, we need to understand who he wrote it to and why he was compelled to write this book to this, this group of people in this city that was completely insignificant. Scholars believe that Paul himself had never even visited the city. It was one of his disciples, Epaphras, who planted the church that was there. So this wasn't a city that was on a regular route of Paul's on his journey. This was a city that was encountering some specific trouble or trouble was brewing on the horizon. And the reason Paul was compelled to write this book is in the young life of their faith, this was a church that was new. These were young Christians in this church. The, the gospel had just reached them not long ago. They were young in their faith and things were already starting to go a bit sideways in that church. And Paul preemptively 
decides that he's going to pen a letter to create some, some hard boundaries theologically and some boundaries with how they live. And so he wrote this letter to this community. And, and one of the things that we need to understand about the Bible is it was never written with the intention that we read it in isolation. This was a letter that Paul wrote that would have been read aloud in a context like this. The, their thoughts and perceptions of God were discussed in community together, not in isolation. And so this community was one that was very fragile in this moment. And we don't know exactly what they were dealing with, but scholars believe that it, we can kind of pinpoint some rough sort of directions as to what they were dealing with at this time. And they were dealing with what some people have called the Colossian heresy. And that's that shortly after this new church had started, they were vibrant and growing and on fire for God. Some people came into the church and were beginning to, to kind of filter through some of their own beliefs. In the Roman Empire of this time, the religious belief and practice was very synchristic, which is just a fancy word for saying that they believed in many deities and many gods, and it was kind of like an everything goes period of time. You took a little bit from here that you liked, and you took a little bit from there that you liked, and you, you, you kind of made this Frankenstein image of God through all of these different aspects of these religions that they would see on the street. And so this began to happen in the life of the church. Their simple view of Christ and what he had done was being challenged. They were being challenged by Jews saying, you know, it's not enough just to believe in Christ. You need to actually practice the law. You need to actually become circumcised. You need to do these things. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. They were being challenged by their culture and this was probably one of the most pervasive things is that they were challenged by a culture that said it's okay to believe what you believe, but you can't declare it as absolute truth. That Jesus is maybe a, a prophet or a great man or a powerful man, but, but let's not put him alone on top as God. And so in their culture and in their day, they were challenged to not declare truth, but to accept your truth and my truth, this relativism of truth, that truth is what you decide it is. Truth is what you declare it to be. And so Paul, seeing that there is potentially a storm brewing on the horizon, decides that he's going to to write a letter to this group of people to set the record straight. And one theologian, Bishop Lightfoot, says this, the doctrine of the person of Christ in Colossians is here stated with greater precision and fullness than in any other of St. Paul's epistles. Paul's writing in this short book is a powerful declaration of a few things. It's a powerful declaration of the supremacy of Christ, the authority of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ. 
And another way to say it would be to say Paul is declaring that it's Christ and nothing else. Not Christ and a little bit of the world, not Christ and a little bit of this other religion, not Christ and a little bit of New Age, not Christ and a little bit of Islam, not Christ and a little bit of yoga, and not Christ and a little bit of Eastern mysticism and all of that stuff. No, Christ and nothing else. And in this short book, Paul dives deep, deep, deep into the authority and supremacy and position of Jesus Christ. He expounds on the person of Christ in this short little book with more precision than in any of his other writing. And I think it's interesting in our day when we take a look at what our culture is like, the pressures on our culture, the pressure on people of faith, the pressure on us to just relax a little and just, just take a bit of a smorgasbord of, of all of these different beliefs. And we have these, these people that have been influencing our culture, and I'm not going to name names, but saying, no, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That there is no universal truth, that everything is relative. You believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. But don't you dare tell me that what you believe is absolute truth. And so we find ourselves in a day and age where truth and the concept of truth is being challenged. The Romans had created and lived in a culture where there were many gods, many roads to heaven or nirvana, many ways to paradise. And Paul comes in with this short little book. And like a surgeon, he just attacks this prevailing thought that we can have a little bit of God, a little bit of Jesus, and a little bit of everything else, and we'll still be okay. There's an incredible weight and pressure even in our evangelical churches today to flex when it comes to truth, to flex when it comes to things that the Bible affirms clearly, to flex to culture, to flex to the prevailing mindset politically or sociologically. There's an incredible pressure right now as churches to just let a little bit of these other things in. What will it hurt? What will it hurt if we just allow the Bible to say these other things? What would it hurt? What will it hurt if we just adopt an open door policy to whatever anybody believes coming in? What will it hurt? There's an incredible pressure right now. And I actually don't believe that it's gonna get any better. I think it's gonna get worse before it gets any better. I was reminded as I was studying for this that at the very beginning of the year as we were coming out of the Christmas season, uh, the, a verse that just stuck out to me like crazy was from the book of Daniel and it said, those who do know their God will be strong and do exploits. 
And I really believe as we've walked through this year, as we've been investigating the person of the Holy Spirit, and as we've been talking about the life of Jesus, that we're realizing without the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, without the truth that he provides, without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit teaching us, we will not have the strength we need in the days to come. But the Bible says those who do know their God will be strong. And so as we dive into this book of Colossians, we're just going to take it really verse by verse. My prayer for you and for me is that God just puts a new set of lenses on us. I don't know, maybe it's because now I'm officially in my 40s. I'm 41 now. But like vision... Pastor Brenda talks about it all the time. We just talk about, it's true. I'm buying you a super large print Bible, you know, for up here. Yeah, or a kid's Bible. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, But there's, you know, I was telling you that story of my last visit to the optometrist where he, you know, I'm struggling to like, for my eyes to quickly move from here, like short-sighted to to long reading. And... um, when I was at the optometrist, he, I was telling him about this. Like, I'm just, my eyes are having trouble focusing, and I don't, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm 40. And he just looked at me, and he said, yeah, well, there's nothing I can do now. You're kind of you're over that hump now. And I said, well, can I do, are there, like, exercises or, like, eye weightlifting, you know, exercises that I can do? And he said, no, this is just a product of your age. And um, so... As frustrating as that is, it's been forcing me to look at things a little bit different, to understand limitations and understand things from a different perspective. And I hope that as we cover this book that you as well begin to see Jesus in a new way that you actually would begin to see Jesus as the only one who is sufficient for you. That you would actually begin to see not just a, a theory of Jesus, but the power and grace and supremacy of Jesus. So let's dive into Colossians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. A few books in. You can just uh, flip to it if you have your Bible. If not, that's okay. It will be on the screen behind us. But here's where Paul starts, and here's where we're going to start our journey. Colossians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop there. That's all we're covering today. As I began to dive into this, there is so much right in those first few opening statements of Paul that we need to stop and reflect on. Paul is writing to a church he's never been to, most likely, to a group of people that he's never met before. He's writing to this group of new Christians who were on fire but are struggling in their faith. And the very first thing that Paul does is he establishes the ground rules for the conversation. 
And he says, my name is Paul, and I'm an apostle. First of all, when we look at that word apostle, it literally means an emissary or an advocate of. It's an official representative of Jesus Christ. So Paul is using a word that was actually reserved for those who had walked with Jesus through his three and a half years of earthly ministry and who had seen Jesus die and rise from the dead. To be called apostle meant that you actually spoke and had the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. Paul lays some ground rules here. And although he wasn't with Jesus in Jesus's three and a half years of ministry, God had given him a vision. Jesus had revealed himself to Paul in such a powerful way that he could say, I'm an official representative of Christ. What I have to say matters. What I say carries weight. The Bible goes on to say in other parts that that we are actually, when you give your life to Jesus, when you accept him as your savior, that you're a new creation, that you're actually, the old is gone, the new has come, that you're actually in the family of God, that he's actually adopted you. And in the same way, when you give your life to Christ, he says, I'm, I'm authorizing you to carry my name, and not just my name, but my authority in your life. We may not call ourselves apostles specifically, But Paul here is laying a groundwork that we need to realize in our own life, in our culture, and in today's day and age. When you have given your life to Christ, you've been adopted into his family. That's not just uh, something that is a, a nice idea. It's not just a hallmark card that gets sent to you in the mail. It's an actual adoption that comes with the full authority of who Jesus is. The question is, do we actually carry that authority of Jesus in our life? Do we walk into work, into our schools, into our social spheres? Do we walk in our neighborhoods with the authority of Jesus recognizing that it's actually his name and his presence behind us that gives us authority and power over any assignment of the enemy. The first question for us is, do you know whose you are? Paul clearly knows the power and sufficiency of Jesus. And he's not speaking this arrogantly. He's just declaring, look, I'm an official representative of Christ. And because I am that, it carries with it the authority and the power that comes with the name of Jesus. Paul then goes on to say, that he is an apostle by the will of God. And this too is loaded, loaded with deeper meaning. When we actually look at the Greek word 
for will. It's thelema. And that means to desire, purpose, wish. It's an attitude of the mind. And, and this is not so much as the will as, as a cognitive decision-making process. This is actually more in reference to the heart. It's an attitude. It's, it's actually an emotive word that Paul is using here. And what he's saying is, I'm an apostle of Jesus because of the heart of God for my life. He's put me here and he's given me an assignment to do. I was thinking about this story. I don't know if even I've told my dad this fully, but now I will. Um, when I was in high school, um, we lived in a new subdivision, and uh, right behind our house, they were still building the subdivision, and they were still doing a lot of the work on the, the land, excavating for the roads, and they had just put in sewers and things like that, and there were a whole bunch of signs around that said, don't enter. And one night, I got the bright idea with my friends in my dad's car. There's a, I have a lot of stories about my dad's vehicles specifically, but we were in uh, probably a 1988 Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra, which was the bane of my existence at that time as well. And uh, so we were driving, and I thought, well, this is a suitable car for off-roading. Why don't we go behind our house in this new part of our neighborhood? It was probably 10 or 11. It was pitch black at night. And uh, I just decided, since we're not on the road, there's no actual speed limit in this area, so why don't I just gun it, and we'll see how the suspension reacts, and we'll see what happens. And so I just floor it on this road behind our house. We're, we're like literally three minutes from my house. And we're driving, and we're hooting and hollering, and we're laughing and having a good time. And then all of a sudden, the nose of the car dives down into this ditch. There's a big, loud bang and a crash. My two friends literally fly into the front seat of the car. It was one of those old bench seats. You remember those? And they fly into the front seats of the car. The car stalls, turns off, the lights are on. There's smoke everywhere and there's uh, dust everywhere. And, we're, and, and we've come to a stop now. And we're going, what in the world was that? So we get out of the car and I'm not joking, there was a square excavated hole that was at least four feet deep. In the middle of the excavated hole was a manhole that they were, they just installed it. So solid steel manhole in the middle of that. So going probably 80 or 90 kilometers an hour, we hurled the car down into this four foot deep hole. It projected out the other side, stalled, and the lights were on. So I get out. And um, this car, because it was so amazing, had plastic hubcaps on it. You remember those two? So the hubcaps on the front tires were obliterated. They were in pieces all over the, the dirt road beside the car, literally in pieces. The front bumpers got cracks all over and everything. And so panic begins to sort of ensue. Uh, this is the family car, after all. And uh, so luckily it starts up, and we drive it the one kilometer back to our house. It's late, I open the garage door, pull it into the garage, and head straight for the duct tape. And, um, <laughs> yep, so I grab the duct tape, and I'm taping the plastic rims together from behind, taping the bumper together, and I just assemble it, what I think is nicely. Um, and 
don't say a word. I just, this is not something to talk about. So um, my dad noticed that something was different about the car. There was something a little bit different. It kind of handled differently, didn't drive quite right. Anyway, uh, by God's providence, we sold that car relatively quickly after that. While he was in the process of selling it, the dealership took a look at it. And the dealership was looking at it, and they said, Sir, do you realize the whole frame is bent on your car? And my dad said, What? What are you talking about? How, like, how, how does that happen? So he came home, shared that bit of information with me, and I said, I, I might know how you would bend the frame on a, on a whole car. And uh, so I shared with him what had happened. And... What's interesting is I tell that story because a lot of times in our life as we look at the will of God, at the purposes and the plans of God for our life, we're a bit like I was when I was 17 and we blow by all the signs that are saying, don't go down this road, don't enter here. We blow by all the cautionary signs we, we rely on our own instinct and our own wisdom and on our own intellect. We blow right by God's warning signals, deciding that we know how to do what we need to do, that we're actually, we're capable, we're competent to make our own decisions. And in the same way, God says, okay, I'm giving you free will. I'm giving you the chance to choose. And we blow right by. God's leadership and direction in our life. And Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's writing it declaring, I'm here. I'm even in this prison because of the will of God. I'm involved in your life because of the heart and the plans and the purposes of God for me. But so often we, we get distracted and we get thrown off course by what we see around us. We look at our circumstances and we look at our life and we look at what we're going through and we look at all of this, this stuff and we go, there's no way that could be the heart of God for me. Why would God ask me to do this thing that I don't even want to do? Why would he do that? Why would God lead me here or there or wherever else? And Paul in this moment is saying, look, don't look at the circumstance I'm in. The circumstance I'm in will trick you. If you believe what you see out of your eyes, you're going to get tricked. But I'm actually here. I'm writing to you from a jail cell. And I'm here because of the will and the heart and the purposes and the plans of God. We could talk for weeks about understanding the will of God. But what I want to leave you with this morning as we just start, as we take our first baby steps into this book of Colossians, I want to leave you with a couple things. One, Paul knows who he is and he knows who Christ is. And because he knows who he is and whose he is, He's able to discern and understand the heart and will and purposes of God for his life. He's able to, with confidence, to say, look, I didn't 
carve out this life that I'm leading on my own. In fact, Paul was literally a terrorist against the church. And because of God's heart and his purposes and his will, God intersected Paul's life and called him out of one life into a totally different life. So with authenticity, Paul could say, I'm not talking to you because I believe I'm the smartest or most capable. I'm not talking to you because my resume fits the bill. I'm not talking to you because my life looks perfect on the outside. I'm not talking to you because I've got it all together. I'm talking to you because God has a heart for me. And his heart for me trumps everything else in my life. So my question for you and for me today is when was the last time you actually let God lead something in your life? If you just take a quick look at your life right now, could you say in any one or two or three or four areas, I am there because of the will and the heart and the purposes of God? If you take stock of your own life, where are the areas that God is actually leading you? Where it's not just you out cultivating and doing your own thing and making your own decisions and and building your retirement fund and and working your way up the ladder and, and doing this and that and everything else. But where is God leading you in your life? Where is he out ahead and in front? When was the last time you saw those caution signs and said, God, I don't know what you want me to do right now, but I'm going to yield to you. I know what I want to do, God, but I want to do what you want to do. The first way that we know what God's will in his heart is for us is to humble ourselves. Humility is the first step in understanding the will and the heart of God. We need to humble ourselves and go, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision is wise. I don't know what to do with my kids right now. I don't know what to do in my school or in my work. But I humble myself before you. In the life and ministry of Jesus, the most important establishing characteristic of his life was humility and dependence on God through the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to understand the will of God, if you want to get behind what he's doing instead of just blazing your own trail, it starts with humility. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself before God, he will actually give you the grace you need to walk the life that he's called you to. The second thing is dependence. Jesus said, even as he was facing brutal torture and crucifixion, not my will, but yours be done. God, I'm not depending on my strength here. I'm not depending on my resources. But God, I want your will to be done. I can tell you with sincerity that 
standing up here as I am is not because of my choice or my decision making. This might be one of the very few times in my life where I've said, God, I want your will and not mine and everything in me is bucking against this and everything in me is rebelling against this, but I am your child, I trust you. So I want you to lead. And as Paul starts this letter to the Colossians, he's saying, I'm here, not because of some plan I've cooked up, but I'm here because I trust Jesus. I'm here because I'm allowing him to lead and orchestrate. And even though on the surface it may feel like things are falling apart, I trust Jesus. Let's stand together. Today as we leave, I just want to challenge you with this question. What is God really leading in your life? And conversely, what are the areas that you've been leading that you need to just surrender back to him? What are the decisions that you've been making that you've just been blowing through those caution signs and oblivious to God's voice and his activity? When was the last time you asked the Holy Spirit to speak to you about the heart and the plans of God for your life? When was the last time you said, God, not what I want in this situation, but what you want? Paul's authority came from who he was and who was sending him. And if we don't understand this part, we're never going to live the lives of victory in the name of Jesus that he's calling us to. We're never going to have victory over depression and bondage to sin, and we're never going to have spiritual victory the way that he's inviting us to if we don't understand who we are and whose we are, if we don't humble ourselves and step behind the leadership of Jesus and the name of Jesus. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.